This evening, we are privileged again to be able to study one of our great favorite Bible passages to be able to uh, take some time to listen to and learn from what the scriptures say uh, in some of these wonderful passages. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I just wonder how many of us were, as a child, encouraged and taught to memorize the 23rd Psalm. I can tell you that in the class that I was in, Sister Verdi Collins taught at the Bethel Church of Christ in Vernon, Alabama. You learn first John 3.16, then you learn the 23rd Psalm, and then you learn the 100th Psalm, and if you were then ambitious, then you went to Matthew 1 and learned the genealogies. I will tell you, I went all the way through Matthew, or I went through Psalm 100. I didn't ever, never was able to get all the genealogies, but uh, she was a great teacher, and one that I thought uh, was concerned about us as her students. This psalm has provided a tremendous amount of comfort for people who are struggling, particularly those who are going through. Uh, times of sadness at funerals. Uh, I can't tell you how many times when I speak with the family and I say, is there anything specific that you would like for me to address? Probably the most um, common is for one of them to say, will you say something about the 23rd Psalm? This Psalm is short, only six verses, but it has some powerful teachings in it. We're going to look at two things. We're going to look at the shepherd and the sheep in verses 1 through 4, and then the gracious host in verses 5 and 6. Let's begin with our study. Let's look carefully at verses 1 through 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I did have to look down a time or two because I memorized the King James and I had to deliver it in this one. This is a pastoral metaphor. That is the picture of a shepherd and sheep. And if tonight all I were to do were simply to go through the various passages which use shepherds and sheep, we would be here not only for the normal allotted time, but for a considerable length of time beyond that. So what I want to do is simply to notice a few things about the shepherd-sheep illustration. First of all, it was a very common occupation in Bible times. Rarely it is the case today that you will find somebody who will say, Oh, I have sheep at my house. But in biblical times, most people were those who kept various animals. Some would keep a certain amount of sheep. Some would keep a certain amount of cattle. But you have to remember, these are clean animals. And for that reason, the children of Israel often were found as being shepherds. The very first mention of one is found in Genesis 4, verse 2, 
where the text says, Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So you find that the very first sons that were born were of the agricultural side, and we find that of Abel. The children of Israel, as a nation, as a people, were sheep herders. Now when you go to the discussion in Genesis chapter 47, and as Joseph brings his brethren down, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. And yet they are not ever going to deceit again. And so we find in Genesis 47 and verse 3, Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. We're shepherds. But when you come and you notice about David specifically, David began his boyhood serving as a shepherd. I know most of us as children, whatever occupation our parents had, they attempted to try to communicate to us how to do various things. And David was trained as a boy. 1 Samuel chapter 17 provides a, a great amount of detail. I just want to focus, for instance, on verses 32 through 35. Then David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. I want to tell you, David's a man of courage. To go after a wild animal, whether it's a bear or a lion, and to try to protect sheep. So David knew what it was to be a strong man. When I come to the New Testament, Jesus embraces this uh, figure very well. In fact, for instance, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36, it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. You see, Israel as a nation was pictured as sheep, and Jesus being that great shepherd. In Matthew 25, verse 32, Jesus is going to use an illustration of judgment. And what figure does he use? He says, And all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So you see it in his life. But the passage that in my judgment that stresses this so much is John chapter 10, beginning with verse 1 going all the way through verse 16. And again, obviously, we cannot look at all of those verses. So I just want to look at verses 7 through 11. Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief does not come except to kill or steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Again, there's so much more to this, but I want to stress that Jesus embraced this great figure. And according to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20, he said that great shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is the great and good shepherd. But now when you think about this figure, you've got to put your mind to it and think about the nature of shepherds, think about the nature of sheep. And we read in Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. To put it very frank and bluntly, sheep are dumb. They do not often make themselves aware of their surroundings. For instance, they may not always notice that there's danger near. They are often the type that will fall into a crevice, into a, some sort of hole. They're the kind that will be eating grass, and the next thing you know, they're eating grass and all the other sheep are gone, and they find themselves lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the nature of us as people. In Jeremiah 15, verse 6, Jeremiah writes, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They've turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. You see, if you've got a shepherd who's not a good shepherd, then sheep will follow into dangerous places. In Matthew 18 and verse 12, there's the illustration. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray? Will he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? That's the nature of sheep. You may have one. And notice how man is that way. You'll have a congregation of, of good, loving sheep, but periodically it seems that one of us just has to go our own way and do our own thing. Sad it is that Ezekiel describes the situation of shepherds and sheep and the fact that sheep become the prey for some shepherds. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy to them. Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherd feed the flocks? You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with wool, you solder the flat fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. See, the sheep of God's people did not have good leadership among them. And then he talks about that. Because of that, they became food for the beast of the field. When Paul met with the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he recognized them as having a flock over which the Holy Spirit had made them overseers in verse 28. And he warned them in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will enter in among you, or come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Just like the sheep, we as his people are often prey to savage wolves. And then in Matthew 7 and verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So I think you, you get the picture of the background of shepherds and sheep. But now let's go back to the 23rd Psalm and let's look at verses 2 and 3. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Verse 1 says, I shall not want. As a sheep, I will never have a need of anything. What is He going to provide? He's going to make me lie down in green pastures. You know, because we live in such a beautiful uh, climate, we have so much foliage, it's hard for us to imagine living in the country of Israel. But there, you do not always have green pastures, beautiful, lush environment. Many times what you will have is a field that is barren and scrawny. But the picture is here, he has led me to green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Still in the sense that they are not dangerous. If a sheep were to fall into swift waters, that sheep would soon lose its life. He restores my soul. Now, just like the word restore means to give back, to put something back where it goes, He restores my soul. Listen to Psalm 60, verse 1. Oh God, You have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. Put me back in the flock. You think about a sheep that goes astray and has been restored. He's been put back in the flock. Or you go to Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The word converting here is exactly the same word for restore in Psalm 23 and restore in Psalm 60, verse 1. So it could be translated, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It's able to put us back where we ought to be. But then he leads me in paths of righteousness. There's different kinds of paths. When you go to Psalm 1 and verse 1, he's going to talk about those paths. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. There are paths of sinners, but God doesn't lead me there. God leads me in the paths of righteousness. How does He do that? By His Word. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so God leads us and provides for us for His name's sake because we're His sheep. But then God is also a protector. He says, note carefully, that His rod and staff protect us. And that though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil. I want you to notice with me the difference between verses 1 through 3 and verse 4. It says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He 
leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But notice verse 4. Yea, I walk through the valley of shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What's the difference between verses 1 through 3 and verse 4? 1 through 3 is talking about God. In verse 4, he begins to talk to God. You see, the 23rd Psalm is not only telling us about who God is, the 23rd Psalm is also a prayer to God of thanksgiving. The phrase, the shadow of death. That's an interesting concept in and all of its own. The term shadow of death is found 17 times in the Old Testament. And it refers to the time of one's passing. For instance, let me just direct you to Job chapter 10 verse 21. Before I go to the place from which I shall not return to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. He's talking about his passing. Or, for instance, Job 38, verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Notice the parallel between the gates of death and the shadow of death. What he's talking about is when I go through this valley, I'm not going to be fearful for death. Now, if you visit the Bible lands, they will generally carry you in the Judean wilderness. And from Jerusalem to Jericho, there is a valley known as Wadi Kelt, very green, lush valley that sits between two very harsh areas of no greenery whatsoever. And if you're going to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going to go down that little valley because there's water there because there's greenery there, but there are also caves in which bandits and robbers would hide. And they would come out, and anyone passing through, they might take their life. And so you get this visual imagery in your mind, though I am passing through the valley of the shadow of death, my life is being threatened, I'm near dying, I'm not going to fear. Why am I not going to fear? Because God is with me. The same as shepherds being with a flock and protecting them from predators provides comfort and reassurance. So does this as well. And then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These were the two instruments that every shepherd would take with them. The rod was an instrument to beat an animal with. For instance, there's going to be a lion or maybe a bear that's going to come or, or a ravenous wolf. You're going to take the rod and you're going to use it to beat him with. Generally, it would be a very stern stick and it would be something that a person could have some weight in and would be able to hit an animal and at least run him off. The staff's a little bit different. Perhaps you've seen a shepherd with a long staff, usually much taller than himself, and on the end of it, it has a crook. That crook is called a shepherd's crook. The purpose of that is if a sheep gets down into a crevice, the shepherd could turn it upside down, put it around the body of the sheep, and lift it up out of the crevice. So you had something both protecting from outside challenges, like a wild animal, and you had something in the other hand of the shepherd that would even protect you from your own negligence 
and from the wandering away. Now very quickly, let me move to the last two verses to talk about a gracious host, about a prepared table. And there David said, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A prepared table is a place to eat. You think, for instance, many of you may today at lunchtime go back home and you, you bring out the food and you put it on the table. There's a prepared table. In Psalm chapter 78, verses 18 and 19, looking back to their wilderness wandering, and they tested God in their hearts by asking for food of their fancy. Yet they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Can God provide us food to eat while we're out here in the wilderness? Obviously he did. He provided manna for them. He provided quail for them. He prepared food for them. So David gives this picture. You prepare a table before me, but then he says, in the presence of my enemies. You allowed other people to see that you care for me. You are providing for me. What a gracious host that is. God allows his people to prevail. But then he said, you anoint my head with oil. Keep in mind that of a gracious host. The anointing of a person's head with oil was an act of hospitality. You go to someone's house today and you get ready to uh, sit down at the table. Part of our routine or tradition is, do you need to go wash up? you need to go wash your hands? Part of their tradition was when you came to someone's house for a meal, they would wash your feet or have those feet washed, and then they would anoint your head with oil. When Jesus went to Simon's house in Luke chapter 7, and there was a woman who came in, evidently wandered in the court. She sat at Jesus' feet. She cried. She took her tears and washed the, oil, the feet of our Lord and dried them with her hair. Simon, reasoning in his mind, said, you know, if this man knew what kind of woman it was who was touching him, he wouldn't allow this to be done. And notice the way the Lord responds. Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no this kiss. But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. You see, it was just a common thing of hospitality. So David pictures here, God has prepared a beautiful table before the presence of his enemies. He's anointed his head with oil. And then he uses this third thing. My cup runs over. I don't know about many of you growing up, but I can tell you as a child, here's what would happen to us. Mom and Daddy would come in and they would have a Coke in a bottle and they'd pop the top off of it. 
And they would take and they'd pour so much in this glass, so much in this glass, so much in this glass. And they would all set the glasses side by side. And you had to have the same kind of glasses so that you got the same amount. But you didn't get the whole bottle. You just got a part. But now here the cup runs over. You get all you want. It's talking about the bounty. Notice Matthew 14 verse 20. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained multiplying the loaves and the fishes. Do you see the, the fact that God is so bountiful in what that he gives? So then he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely. This is confident I know what God's going to do because of the way he's treated me in the past. I know what he will do in the future. And so then he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, when we think about that phrase, we may think about going to heaven. And that is an appropriate thought for us. But when David writes this phrase, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, He's thinking about the tabernacle. He's thinking about going and worshiping God. Listen to Psalm 27 and verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David looked at opportunities to go to the house of God as something great. And then Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. You start talking about people coming to services today, and they want to make all kinds of excuses. Well, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do that. If somebody loves God like David did, they look at it as a joy and as a privilege to be able to go to the house of the Lord. And of course, house of the Lord today is the church and in the future it will be our heavenly home. There's so much great comfort in this passage. I knew when I started I wasn't going to touch but just a very very small part of it. But the key in my opinion is going all the way back to verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Not just saying the Lord is a shepherd. But the Lord is my shepherd. If he is my shepherd, I hear his voice. I listen to him. I follow him. John 10 is a perfect commentary on it there. But I have to ask, is God, is Jesus your shepherd? All sheep can go astray. But to not stray means that we have to listen to the master's voice, to our shepherd's voice. Tonight, if you're here and you are not a Christian, you are not one of the Lord's sheep. But you can be. You can come and you can enjoy all the privileges. As John 10.10 says, you can enjoy life and enjoy it more abundantly because he is that great shepherd. You do that by believing in Jesus, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith, and being baptized. If you are a child of God and you're that straying sheep, now's the opportunity.
you to come back and be restored. Would you come as together we stand and sing?